I'm going to read the scripture passage first, and then I'm going to back up. So uh, just to let our person in the back know, if you want to throw that up on the screen, that would be lovely. I'm changing up my sermon notes just, just, just a touch, just a little bit here. What I want to do is read the key passage that we're going to review again today. We started it last Sunday, uh, and uh, we're going to dig into this a little more. And this passage that we're about to read from Luke 24 um, is a passage that happens after Jesus' resurrection. So sort of after the Easter Sunday event in the days following, this passage picks up in Luke chapter 24. And we're going to read a few verses. We're not going to read the whole thing. We're going to start uh, right there in, uh, uh, well, I guess we have verse 24 there, but I'm going to, I'm going to start, yeah, sure, verse 24, uh, and we're going to read through 30, uh, just to the end there. So picking it up at verse 24, if you want to read along, It'll be on the screen. This is the New English Translation. Great translation, by the way, to pick up or read online because it includes all of the notes of the translators if you want to go a little deeper into background of why they chose this word or that word in the Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic. But let's hear this. This is from the Gospel of Luke. Luke is writing, and he says this, Then some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the woman had said, the women rather had said, but they did not see him, meaning Jesus, not in the tomb. Verse 25, so this person who's walking along with them, these two disciples, Cleopas, Cleopas, are walking on the road, and Jesus is accompanying them, but they don't know it's Jesus, the risen Jesus. They don't recognize him. And so it says this, verse 25, So he said to them, You foolish people, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now again, in some of the ways to translate this, it sounds harsher in English than it actually was, but by the way, verse 26, Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory. Then, and hear this, verse 27, this is crucial for what we're talking about here today and last Sunday and in this whole Jesus-centered stuff. Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things written about himself in all of the scriptures. And this is, the New Testament isn't written yet at this point, so he's talking about what we would call Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. So they approached the village where they were going. He acted as though... He wanted to go farther, but they urged him to stay. Stay with us, because it's getting towards evening, and the day is almost done. So he went in to stay with them. Verse 30, when he had taken his place at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed, broke it, and gave it to them. At this point, their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. Then he vanished out of their sight. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us while he was speaking with us on the road, the road to Emmaus, and while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And so they got up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those gathered together, those eleven core disciples, and saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how they recognized him when he broke the bread. Let's pray gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus. Lord, we thank you that by the Holy Spirit, you illuminate the text and that you desire to move within us and through us. In God, we see in the church across the globe and certainly in North America, a season of shaking, a season of deconstruction, a season of calling to account. And it is obvious and apparent that the saying that God's judgment begins in the house of God is happening across this, this land. And Lord, may we not kick against it, but may we embrace it to get re-centered on you, that as you send that judgment, you're also sending revival and reformation to get us back on center again. 
And Lord, we confess as we come to this scripture, we are co-opted by agendas and ideologies. It is so easy, myself included. But, oh, Lord, draw us back, draw us back, draw us back to the center. For when you are lifted up, then all people are drawn to you. But when it's you plus whatever, we've created a new awful thing. So, God, we call for ourselves to turn towards you again this day in the name of Jesus Christ. And if you're willing to, say amen. Please be seated this morning. By the way, I love preaching and teaching, but I also love hearing from in-house guests and guests we bring in. We try to bring in guests at least once a month, um, although because I'm transitioning, I'm preaching a little more, but anyway, I'm super excited to hear from Josh. It also gives me time to schedule more meetings with people as well, so uh, if we haven't met lately, uh, next week is a good week to do it, because Josh is on and I will be ignoring sermon study, so amen. Uh, let's throw some quotes up on the screen. Today, we are looking at a continued series, and by the way, we break series for Easter. If you've been around me for either the last five years or the last 25 years, every Good Friday, every Easter, I preach on those texts. Uh, so just FYI, we will break once we get to Holy Week, and then we'll jump back in and to finish up. But a few things to say here this morning about that Reformation, that new Reformation, that calling us back to Jesus that the church in North America desperately needs, and some of us are responding to that this morning, we're going to talk again about this need for this focus again, and that centering on Jesus needs to be unpacked more. In Luke 24, we look at this, and there's a statement in this first sermon. I'm still in sermon number one. This is part two of sermon number one today. Uh, there's two things that are huge within the first theme here. These two big ideas are this. God always looks like Jesus. I'm going to say that one more time, but I'd like you to fill in the word Jesus, just so I know you're awakened with me this morning. God always looks like Jesus. All right. I think we need to do that one more time. God always looks like Jesus. Amen. Come on now. All right. I almost felt it this morning. All right. It's my inner Pentecostal. Come on now. The second big thing in this first sermon we want to remember is this. All Scripture... And this is the one where the church gets way off the rails a lot. All scripture, number two, is properly read through him. I'm going to say that one more time. All scripture is properly read through him, meaning Jesus. All scripture is properly read through Jesus. If you grab these two things and you let it mess up your faith for the rest of your life, you will not settle for any truncated false Christianity, some sort of civil religion variety. It will constantly critique and correct and draw you back to how you need to read the Bible and how you need to filter sermons and media and, uh, and TikToks and, and Instagram reels. Anybody claiming anything about the Bible from the most fundamentalist to the most rabid uh, uh, pop atheist out there, this matters. This is huge. This is so important to get if we're going to understand how this book is supposed to be read. So again, the big idea is that God always looks like Jesus and scripture is read through him. In fact, John 2.22 says this, that Jesus had to, be die, had to die. In fact, we learned that Jesus had to die and be resurrected before his disciples could understand him. We read in John chapter 5, uh, another wonderful passage where, uh, well, I don't know about wonderful, wonderful and horrible, that the scholars and the scribes who knew the scriptures would read all of it, and yet they miss Jesus. You can know the scriptures and miss the point. Have you ever read an email and missed the point? I've had a couple of those emails. Email's dangerous like that, right? Uh, you, you may get something else out of it if we don't get to, well, what is the summary? Well, it could be bad writer as well. Fair enough, but 
Jesus is the point. Jesus is the lens. The disciples grasped, and we read this in the Luke 24 passage, they grasped the change uh, in how to understand Scripture after they have an encounter with the risen and resurrected Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus changed how these Jewish followers understood the Bible or the, what would have been the Hebrew Bible at that time. That's so important to understand. And, you know, I went to church for years and nobody ever explained this to me, that how you read the Bible changes because of the resurrection. You don't just rip something out of the Old Testament and slap it down now and say it applies equally today as it did then. To do that, in fact, is to do violence to the very point of the Hebrew Bible. And we're told in Luke 24 that all of it is leading to him. When he says that he, unroll, he explained to them uh, the Moses and the prophets, that's shorthand for everything that it was in the Old Testament. Moses, the prophets, and the writings, that all of it is pointing towards him. Matthew uses the language that in Jesus, the law was fulfilled or comes to fullness in him. What Jesus does on the cross and, the, and, and dealing with death and resurrection, he takes it all on. That changes how we read this book and how we should understand it. This is important. And I was not raised being told these things, that the Bible itself tells us, this is how you should read this book, and yet we ignore it. Because sometimes we have agendas. We were taught in our own culture of origin, our own churches we were raised in sometimes, we were told, oh, no, no, well, you need to value this thing way up there at the top. This needs to be in the center, and that needs to be in the center, and this other thing needs to be in the center. And, well, in my case, it was speaking in tongues as the initial physical evidence. That needs to be, well, not the center, but really close to the center, too close sometimes. And we can name any other things when, in fact... The only thing at the center is God revealed fully in Jesus. He's the clearest picture we get. If you keep wrestling with that as a church, you will have something to offer that this city desperately needs. And I thank God there's many churches wrestling with that. But we need to continue to say, this matters. This is where it's out. This is the hill we die on. Jesus is the hill we die on. Well, thankfully, he died on the hill for us. But you get the idea, right? This is the thing. This is the center. John 2.22 says this. So after he was raised from the dead, the Gospel of John, the author John, the beloved disciple of Jesus, wrote some years after to make sure that the stories were maintained and that the tradition was properly relayed. says, so after Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the saying that Jesus had spoken. The resurrection changed how they read it. On the road to Emmaus, these disciples are awakened to how to understand scripture. He unfolds it for them. We're going to walk through that a little more, and I want to give you some five things before I leave today, but I want to go back to Luke 24. But before that, let me read one more text in the New Testament that tells us that we read the Bible, we understand God through Jesus. Full stop. Not, not, any, not Jesus plus, well, sometimes we need to grab back some of the, the understandings of Yahweh in the Old Testament, you know, where he commanded harem or holy war. No, 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 no. We read it through Jesus. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and talks about this idea. He said, you have heard it said, and he quotes Torah. He quotes the Bible. He quotes the only Bible they had. And he says, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, and he begins to modify the law, the Bible, on the fly as a living uh, representative of, as of God himself. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders lost their minds again and again and again because Jesus did this consistently. And the Gospels tell us this. He'd talk about Sabbath laws. Well, you have heard it said. The Sabbath says this. And he corrects, tweaks, and sometimes utterly changes their complete understanding of how they interpreted Sabbath law for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Why could he do that? Well, as C.S. Lewis said, either he was a lunatic 
Because that would get you death because he's claiming the power of God to completely rewrite and reorder the law. Only God can do that. And as far as they saw, he was no Moses. But in fact, he was a new Moses, a new and greater Moses. And they would lose their minds. And many times it would get them to the brink of being, cru- being killed, stoned, uh, the religious death, death punishment for blasphemy. Why? Because he's saying, you've read it wrong. I'm telling you, this is what it's pointing to. And oh, by the way, we learn as we get towards the end of Jesus' life, as we move towards Good Friday and we move towards Resurrection Sunday, that Jesus changes everything in all of creation, including how we read the Bible. This is so important. We've quoted this verse again, and it's in our vision statement, by the way. We exist to love our city, invite others to flourish uh, by rooting ourselves in the outrageous love and life of Jesus. This is the vision that this church came up with in the first year of revitalization work. A team prayed over this. The board approved it. The members signed off on it. One of the verses that we link to in that, there's many verses, but is from Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, 15. He, meaning Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation for all things. And hear this, and I've said this verse before because it's so important. For all things in heaven and on earth were created in him. All things, whether visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions, whether principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. For he, Jesus, is before all things, and all things are held together in him. Verse 18 Paul keeps going here. This might have been the ancient hymn that he's relaying. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, meaning the resurrection of Jesus, so that he himself may become first in all things, and through him to reconcile all things to himself by making peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Things on heaven, things on earth. This is so important. If we get this first thing down of the new reformation, we will have something to offer this world. Otherwise, we are just repackaging our culture and our ideologies and whatever little hills we want to die on, and we're just putting a little bit of Jesus peanut butter on top. Jesus is not the peanut butter on top. He's the whole sandwich. (laughs) Hallelujah. And all God's people said, amen. I like how uh, Edom says this, who I mentioned last Sunday. He said, I want to propose something to us Christians. Instead of viewing Jesus as pleasant sight of God, we should see Jesus as the accurate picture of who God is like. And he goes on and says this, and this is worth all of the money you paid to get in here this morning. The problem for many Christians is that we think Jesus is too good to be true, and we need to supplement him with other portraits of God we see elsewhere. We need the Jesus riding the T-Rex, riding the missile with the AK-47 in his arms in some places. No, 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 no. (laughs) Including in scriptures, We seem to look for those views of God that seem in tension with the character of Jesus. For the secular person, again, this perhaps the God the Christians have exposed you to makes you think the Christian God is just like the gods of other religions, not worthy of two minutes of your time. I shared this quote last week. The problem for you might be Jesus has become too ordinary. But the story of Jesus is unsettling. Jesus had to die and be resurrected before his disciples understood him and how to read the Bible. How much more for you and me that we need to remember that we must read the scriptures through Christ. And when a person needs to be resurrected, as one author puts it here, if a person needs to be resurrected before we fully understand something, that changes everything. 
This Easter event is not just one pin note on the calendar. Every Sunday, by the way, traditionally is considered a celebration of the resurrection. There should always be some form of all the emotions, but certainly celebration every Sunday points to that and reminds us that something new is happening. Oh yeah, there's the full quote there. And add onto this fact that the resurrection itself is not ordinary. We may be dealing with something more radical than we've ever been taught to think regarding Jesus. So let's walk through the text quick. Ooh, and I'm gonna, we're not going to do communion today, so chill out if you're worried. Um, but this is good stuff. So this is worth your time. This is worth time. Look at your neighbor and say, this is worth my time. Your neighbor is not convinced. Tell them again. <laughs> oh. Well, Josh was worth your time. This is just add on extra. Okay, come on now. <laughs> Verse 25. So he said to them, again, foolish people, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into glory? Then beginning with Moses and the prophets, shorthand for all of Old Testament, he interpreted to them these things written about himself in all the scriptures. And this is the thing that many of them would not have connected the dots They would not have read the Hebrew Bible this way. And he's telling them, you need to read it differently. And I'm telling you how. By the way, when they figure out later, the resurrected Jesus is the one walking on the road with him. Probably his resurrection body was changed somewhat, somewhat similar. Obviously, it says and elsewhere that you can see the scars and all that. But there's something about this new body, this new creation, this first fruits of what will happen for all of us one day that was both recognizable and not recognizable at that moment. And Jesus begins with that gentle rebuke saying, hey, you naive or unsuspecting people, probably better than foolish in our modern ears, uh, better translation. But he said, how could you miss this? And isn't this as it's predicted to be? N.T. Wright again, and I've shared this before, but for for that we need to learn how to read the scriptures. And for that we need as our teacher the risen Lord himself, talking about this Luke 24 passage. And he goes on and says this, this passage forms one of the most powerful encouragements to pray for the spirit, the presence of Jesus, the sense of guidance, whenever we study the Bible individually or in pairs or in groups, individually in pairs or in groups, we need to pray for his presence and sense of guidance. Traditionally, the church actually has this in in most church liturgy, whether it's high church, middle church, low church, before the reading of the scriptures, there's something called the prayer of illumination. When we invite the Holy Spirit to illuminate the text to us, whether it's for a sermon or just standalone reading of scripture, we need the sense of guidance in T. Wright. Former Bishop of Durham says this, and the Anglican Church in England says this, and he says, we need to be prepared for him to rebuke our foolish and faithless readings and to listen for fresh interpretation. Only with him at our side will our hearts, like Emmaus, road to Emmaus, will our hearts burn within us and lead us to the point where we see the risen Jesus face to face. If we start reading the scripture with Jesus' glasses on, on the road with Jesus, to the road of Emmaus, you can experience that Jesus, by his spirit, is present with us right now and in this place and in this time and in your life and wants to speak to you. But if you just approach it as a dead book or you approach it as, um, to, to, to be careful here, I say this carefully, we, we don't approach this like our Muslim and Sikh neighbors. Uh, and again, I respect and, and honor, and, and you know, I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, but one of the differences between Orthodox Christianity and religions that also have books is that we do not hold this book as, as if God like mindlessly took over a bunch of automatons and wrote it down, like a dictation theory as some may be wandering into. Or in, in the Sikh religion, you know that in the Gudwara, that the last, uh, the, the last great guru, 
what is it, the 10th guru or the 11th guru, I can't remember which one the book is, but the Anigrant, it is placed upon, the, the book is placed upon the altar, it is, it is the last guru. We don't believe that. We believe, yes, this is the word of God, but it, not in the same way that Jesus is the living word of God. Or to quote our friend Brad Jerzak, uh, I believe in the inherent, inspired, infallible word of God, and his name is Jesus. That's actually faithful, by the way, to the apostolic writings that we have in this book. This book affirms that. It says, this is not, the point of this book is not to point you to this book. The point of this book is to get you in relationship with God who has risen from the dead, who walked on the road to Emmaus with the disciples, and who will walk with you if you are willing to let yourself be directed to him and to read it through this idea that there's a God at work in the world who let us kill him and take on all our sins, but death could not hold him down. He is alive, and he is at work, and he will come again fully one day, bringing God's kingdom. That changes how you read the book. All right, I'll keep moving here, and all of God's people said amen. All right. They approached the village <laughs> where they were going, and he acted as though he wanted to go farther, but he said to them, but they urged him, stay with us. Oh, I love this. Verse 29, this is powerful. This is so awesome. So they urged him, stay with us. They don't yet recognize who he is. It's getting late. We want you to be saved. Come eat with us. Mediterranean, ancient hospitality. They don't want to let this moment go. They're experiencing some breakthrough teaching, not realizing who's teaching them yet, and their minds are being opened to new possibilities by this man. Augustine put it this way. He said this, the teacher was walking with them along the way and he himself was the way. The teacher was walking with them along the way and he himself was the way, the way to life, the way to, to a new way of being human, living alive. And when he had taken his place at the table, verse 30, as we review, he took bread and these words that they probably saw him do as his disciples many times in offering the Jewish uh, thanks and blessings over the bread, took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. And it is at this point their eyes were open. This goes right back to Genesis 3. The woman took some fruit and ate it. She gave it to her husband and he ate it. And the eyes of both of them were open and they knew that they were naked. And now we see the reverse of the second Adam in Jesus, the reversing of the curse of death and judgment and all of that. Now he took the bread, broke it, blessed it, and gave it to them. And at this point, their eyes were opened. <laughs> Hallelujah. And they recognized him as the resurrected Lord. Death was traced to the moment in Genesis chapter 3. Now Luke echoes this story and tells of the meal of the new creation. The curse is broken. Death is defeated. New possibility. New creation. Life and joy opening onto the world. I like how Jeffrey puts this in his commentary. Somehow they intuit. They perceive what they cannot grasp yet in their minds. Augustine, again, loves this passage and introduces what follows by saying this. Uh, and I'm not a big Augustine fan, but there's some good stuff, especially read through Jamie Smith lens. But uh, here we go. He said this. St. Augustine, ancient church father, said this. Because these disciples observed hospitality, they invited this stranger on the road in, whom they did not yet know, who was expounding the scriptures to them. Suddenly now in the breaking of bread, they realize who he is. Offering hospitality, by the way, to strangers is dangerous. This is a side note. I got to preach this because the, the, the spirit just won't let me skip over this part. I'm trying, but offering hospitality to strangers is risky for good or bad. But here's the interesting thing with this. In Luke, earlier on, Jesus sends out some 70 of his disciples and he tells them, make yourselves vulnerable to the hospitality of strangers. And if they invite you in and they listen to you, pray that God's peace comes upon their home. And if they don't leave, let it be done with it. Move on. 
And here, so this idea of the, the most outrageous outreach orientation of the church is to let ourselves be entered in by the hospitality of others. And here are these others, these disciples inviting Jesus, who is the other to them. Unbeknownst to them at this point, the other that they end up inviting into their home ends up being the Lord himself. It tells us this in the New Testament as well. We should be hospitable people because unawares you may be entertaining angels and guests that the Lord wants at your table. That's a very different story than we must have a strong, hard, bounded mindset. That's a center, that's a center set mindset right there, folks. It says this, that what you have in you, if you are a follower of Jesus, filled with his Holy Spirit, your holiness, your goodness, your love is stronger than anything else. That is contagious. Do not fear contagion. The world should fear the contagion of the outrageous love of the local church. Unfortunately, we are not known for that often. And so we do need a new reformation. So they welcome Jesus in. And here's what happens when you invite the stranger in who turns up being angels unaware, and in this case, Jesus himself. Jesus becomes the host at their house. I mean, how weird is that? You invite me over to your meal, and you know, I kick you out of the prime chair in the house, I take the prime seat, and I start uh, presiding over your meal. That You invited me, you would find that a little strange and a little presumptuous, I think. Some of you who know me would be like, well, that's really weird and out of character, but maybe I can see it, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but someone you didn't know at all? And he does this, and he takes the bread, he does the prayers, and in that, their eyes are open. The guest becomes the host. We want to be those kind of people not knowing who we invite in because we don't know who the Holy Spirit is working on. We don't know what's going on in their lives and we don't know how far they are away from coming fully to say Jesus is my Lord and giving allegiance to Jesus. But we want to be the people of outrageous love and hospitality. But if we slam the door before we ever invite them in, we won't find out if Jesus is at work in their lives at this next level. We won't know unless we risk outrageous hospitality. Well, that's a whole other sermon. I got to stop. Okay, land this thing, Shell. Land this. All right. ADHD kicking in. All right, so let's get to the end here. So their eyes are open. They see him, and then he vanishes out of sight. In verse 32, their hearts are burning within them while he's speaking. They begin to look backwards and say, ah, our body's new. There's a knowing in the body sometimes. You know, sometimes the charismatics get really harassed by evangelicals who live in their head too much. But in fact, your brain is throughout your whole body and your spirit and body woven together. And something within them intuitively know their flesh knew they were in the presence of resurrection power even though their mind didn't get it yet. This is crazy stuff. This is awesome stuff. This is amazing stuff. This is the deepest kind of truth. You've been around people like this, I think, who are full of the Spirit. Not all of us are all the time, but if you soak yourself in the Spirit and you're attentive to Scripture and you're doing those, those things that inhabit, inhabit you, make you different, uh, form you differently, there's something about those. You may not agree on every minor little doctrine, but there's something about people that spend time in the presence of God. There's life there, and sometimes you're around them and you sense within you that there is something going on here. Before your head can put it together, that's what's going on. Didn't our hearts burn within us while he was still speaking on the road? And this is important for those of us calling the church back to Jesus at the center. That he is the living bread. He is the living water. He is the way, the truth, and the life. John Wesley, who was fully aware of the scripture, raised in church, did not become alive in Christ until he had this experiential encounter with the risen Christ, the power of the Spirit, at, some place, at a place called Aldersgate, in which he said his heart was strangely warmed. Oh God, may it be in this house that our hearts are strangely warmed by the resurrection power of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. 
to have communion with him. Okay, last verse. Let's wrap it up to the end. I'm going to jump to 44 and 45. At the very end of chapter 24, Luke says this. He said, then he said to them, these are my words that I have spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything, again, hear this again, everything, every, say it with me, everything. everything. Oh, come on. Oh, play with me a little more if you're willing. If you're willing, everything, 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 everything written about me in the law of Moses, Torah, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Radical reformation or re-reformation or renewal, number one is this, that we must understand that God is, looks like Jesus. Jesus isn't simply the nice face of God. In him, the fullness of God is revealed to us until he comes again. In Jesus is the whole thing, the whole sandwich, the whole ball of wax. And secondly, this first point is this, that we need to understand we must read the scriptures through the lens of Jesus because that is the direct command again and again and again of Jesus himself as conveyed by the gospel authors and by Paul and by Peter. We see this throughout the New Testament. And I was never told that growing up and when I became a, well, I became a Christian as I was growing up. When I became a Christian in our church, we never said that. We might have implied it here and there. But that's radical. That's life-changing. That helps me filter all kinds of nonsense that happens out there in the name of Jesus or in the name of the Bible or the Bible says, okay, the Bible says it. I believe it. That settles it. Well, that's not quite that simple. The Bible tells us that everything even the Bible says needs to be filtered through the resurrection and the living Christ. The Bible tells us to read it this way. People say they believe in the word of God and they hold it all high, meaning the Bible. They hold the Bible up way high and that they, you know, this is so important and infallible. And it is, it is important. But indeed, if it is that important, then read it like it tells you to read it. Amen? Come on, I'm, I'm excited here. This is good stuff. Don't, get me, don't make me come down there and shout at myself. That would be awkward. All right, all right. Um, but that's important, especially if we're in believers' church traditions where we value the scripture highly will then let us read it like the scripture tells us to read it. And it is so clear. And yet sometimes because we have other agendas, well, it would be easier for me to go to war and dominate my neighbor if I just take a few passages out of the Old Testament. Yeah, it would, but it would be unfaithful to where the whole thing is headed and to Yahweh. It would be unfaithful for me to say, well, I'm going to force, uh, you know, certain of the law of, of the Old Testament on, on, on my church. Because I like things that way. It says, don't have two woven fabrics together in the law. Time to take down these sail panels because Lord knows what they're made out of, right? <laughs> time for a renovation because it's the wrong fabric. Well, it may be time for renovation, but don't abuse the scriptures to make that case. In him, the fullness, the law was fulfilled, was complete. It is the word of God. It was the word of God to ancient Israel, but it is now expanded and fulfilled. And the church is the extended Israel. We read it differently. When we read Paul's passages, we must filter them through what's going on in the context and what else did he say and what were the more universal things that Paul said and the big things that Paul says that continually point to, you know who they point to? Well, I'm going to give you one, op one opportunity to guess who the big picture when Paul is writing always points to. One word. Jesus. Well, somebody passed seminary. All right. <laughs> Woohoo! <laughs> Jesus. 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 In fact, when Paul's pushed to it, like we finished in 2 Corinthians, he said, I didn't want to come in eloquent preaching of human wisdom or power. Gives me hope because I'm a B-plus speaker. <laughs> but I came in demonstration of the, uh, of the Holy Spirit and of power that, that your faith might rest on that and not on these eloquent words. 
And it says this, that God puts the Holy Spirit in these vessels, meaning you and I, these earthen dirt and divinity, these earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power again may be of God and not from us. We understand that the center is Jesus, that the hope is Jesus, that the whole thing points to that. Okay, oh yeah, I got five things to say as we wrap. Okay, here we go. These are the last things. These are the application, take it home, and then we'll expand on these in, in some of the rest of the messages here. So what are some practical implications of this? Because it's all the ones that I've already said. Uh, number one, if God always looks like Jesus, then perhaps it's not a fluke. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, when in his Beatitudes, he reverses the orders of those who we think are blessed versus where God's blessing is revealed. He says, blessed are those who are poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who show mercy. Oh, Lord, help us. We are so quick to judge. Blessed are the peacemakers, which is an exact opposite, by the way, to Deuteronomy 28. The blessings of Deuteronomy are actually flipped on their head in the Sermon on the Mount. Who gets away with that? Who gets to rewrite Torah in an ancient Jewish culture context? Who gets to do that? Nobody. If you're doing that, you're claiming to be on par with God and you are worthy of death. But guess what Jesus does? Say, well, he never said he was God. Well, that is saying you're God. (laughs) It doesn't get any clearer than that in the Sermon on the Mount. It means that the prosperity gospel is reversed. That sometimes the things we do just find security. And I'm as guilty as any of you in this room here are actually get us farther away from Jesus. If God looks like Jesus, the boundaries, the boundedness that we want to set up sometimes, in fact, is exact opposite of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Number two, in application, it means this, the death of the monster God. If God has always been like Jesus and he was willing to be put to naked and shameful death that we will remember on Good Friday and two weeks about by the crucifixion for humanity who were sinners without expectation, without, without exception rather. Romans 5, Romans talks about this for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If he was worthy to be put to death, if he, if he laid down his life, if he was killed by sinners, if he was in collusion with political powers and religious powers that put him to death and he laid his life down on the cross, that changes how we should see God. The monster God is not the God of the Bible, is not the God revealed in Jesus. He is not to be loathed. He is not uh, uh, one day over here and one day over there. In him is all goodness and light and life and no shadows of darkness at all. This is Jesus. This is who we worship in the grand orthodox tradition of Christianity. This is who has been revealed. This is who is walking amongst us this morning by the Holy Spirit. He is all good, all loving. You can trust your life with Jesus. He is not a monster God. This matters how we read scripture. Number three, remember this. There's a wideness in God's mercy. There is an inclusion based on the universality of sin and the universality of God's love. Holiness is contagious. And the Holy Spirit's timeline in someone's life is not the timeline that my wife has for my holiness. It's much to her chagrin. But one day I will get there and one day she will get there too. (laughs) Better be careful. I gotta still, you know... What's the difference? Imagine the difference it makes when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son in response to Pharisees questioning him for eating and drinking with the wrong crowd. The picture Jesus paints is a God who's already longing to embrace and celebrate you in whatever state you're in. While you're yet sinner, Christ died for you. My goodness, can we not hear the grace spilling over that in the love? 
in a God whose love seems indiscriminate, spreading even to those we consider unworthy. And if God has always been like this, then we in our church and churches need to reconsider which people by virtue of cultural or social or economic backgrounds we say are unworthy of our attention. Jesus says everyone is worthy. I've died for all. I, Christ, died for all. And he reaches out and he's calling and he's drawing and he's wooing. I'm too fired up today. The AGM's coming. Roll. Is that my past noon? My goodness. Okay, I got to land this. <laughs> There's a wideness in God's mercy as vast as the ocean and the seas. And he will pursue you and go after you. And even this morning, someone in this room may not have said yes to a relationship with God through Jesus. He's not going to coerce you. He's not going to twist your arm. But he wants you to say yes to giving your heart and allegiance to him. He's after you and he will not give up on you. You are his creation. And he will pursue and pursue and pursue. And evangelicals debate how far that pursuit goes. But as long as you have breath, he is after you. We can say at least that much. Holiness is contagious. Fourth and fifth, the final ones. And Joshua, if we're going to sing something, you better get up here and pick one song because I am taking your time now. Uh, come, come, please, worship team. Number four. Number four, take this away with you this morning. Jesus only gets you everything. We'll say, aren't we being reductionist if we focus on Jesus? No, you get the whole kit and caboodle. You get the whole package in Jesus. You get the Trinity with Jesus. Imagine what the church witness would be like if we were perfect like our Father in heaven, loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, just as Jesus did for those who persecuted him on the cross. Jesus is not simply the nice face of God. We need to take him seriously and believe that this is what God the Father also looks like full on. Jesus said to them, when the disciples said to him, will you show us the Father? And again, he's disappointed. You don't get it yet, guys. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So what about the Holy Spirit? Oh, what about the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit, as A.W. Tozer said, the Holy Spirit who's made Jesus real until he comes again one day. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. In fact, the Holy Spirit is named the Spirit of Jesus at least two times in the New Testament. If you center on Jesus, you get the Trinity in. It's a package deal. It's like a late night infomercial from the 90s. But wait, wait, there's more. If you center on Jesus, some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you will have to look that up that later on TikTok or Instagram Reels to know what I'm talking about. But there's more. You get Jesus. You get the Trinity thrown in. You can't center on Jesus and not. It's impossible. And fifth and finally, I'll say this by application. It means that our church and churches should be houses of healing towards holiness. Let me say that again, healing towards holiness. It means that because of Christ's work on the cross and how he deals with sin and how he deals with exposing evil and death and defeating the powers, at least the four or five different ways we can see what the work of the cross does, often called atonement theories and more, I don't have to be the Roman persecutor nailing the hands of Jesus on the cross or I don't have to be putting the criminal on the cross. But I do want to be keenly and focused about the business of lifting up Jesus, creating spaces for people to experience God's goodness in Jesus. And I want to trust the Holy Spirit will work in our hearts 
That the church is to be a house of healing. How do people become holy? Through healing. How do people become holy? Throw them in the slammer. No. How do people become holy? Through healing, being a house of healing. We are not to be a house of law. We are to be a house of healing and hope. And yes, we'll have to put up boundaries sometimes. That's different from being bounded mindset. But boundaries that are there for healing, for calling out destructive covenant-breaking behaviors in our relationships, in our minds, in our words, in our bodies, whatever. But our fundamental orientation should be we are a house of healing. In fact, one last thought on this. In in Matthew 19, they're wrestling with the idea of divorce and remarriage. And it says, one one of the authors said this, if God accommodated Moses' rule allowing for divorce for centuries on end, well, God's ideal was always for lifelong one flesh union of self-sacrifice for another human. Can our communities be more focused on how to deepen Jesus-centered love in and outside of marriages? instead of condemning those who maybe find themselves divorced or on the brink of it, or dismissing those who continue to be single. You see, houses of healing, we're still learning and we're working and cooperating with the Spirit. But healing is not on our timeline. It's on His. And some stuff people won't be healed from until the life of the world to come. But if our fundamental orientation as a local church is Jesus-centered and trusting in the power of the Spirit... We need to trust that he's at work, that he's doing stuff that goes beyond what we could do in our own strength. So we want to keep taking people to, well, as the scripture would talk about this, that he is the great physician. And we're going to read some of this, probably in Good Friday, the servant song of Isaiah talks about this, that he himself bore our sicknesses on the tree. He took it all on. So our orientation needs to point people to the one who took it all on and saying, I want... I need Dr. Jesus for my soul because <laughs> he's the one that can heal. All right, you got to stand with me. We got to pray. We got to sing because we got an AGM coming up. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> Thank you for indulging a little more, you know. I'm, I'm finally figuring this out about myself. I mean, I've got a guest next Sunday, but I think I'm trying to sneak in two sermons beforehand. See, to see what's going on there? I think maybe. But this is good stuff. I mean, this is stuff... Man, I hope my last word, if I'm in a church before I die, if I'm preaching in the pulpit, old-timer would say something like that. Gee, I'm getting old. Uh, is may the name of Jesus and his hope and his love and his healing and his great physician language be on my lips. Because, oh, I don't want to enter into eternity one day. And he said, well, here's the deal, Pastor. You talked a lot about the secondary, third level stuff. You talked a lot about Torah. You talked a lot about trying to beat or coerce people or fear people or shame people or guilt people into the kingdom. But here's the thing. Every time you did that, you slammed the door on the face of someone that I just brought into that place for the first time. I don't want to be in that place, friends. And I love you and we can disagree on lots of things. But in terms of being centered on Jesus, that is the hill I will absolutely die on. Why? Because he died for me, and I am grateful. And as Paul said, he died for me, and he loved me, and loves me, and you, and you, and you, and everyone here. And that will change your life if you continue to soak in that message, and teach that, and hear that, and respond to that. So Lord, we come to you today, and we are humbled by your word. This spoken through the gospel writer Luke, and the words that were on your lips and we are challenged, Father, because we have been formed often, if, if like me, we're, if anybody here is like me, slightly religious, from religious background, 
I have been trained in being a Pharisee of the Pharisee, a lawyer of the lawyers, a prosecutor of the prosecutors. I have been trained and formed in that. I've been trained and formed in Bibleology, which reads the Bible as if your resurrection was just a secondary footnote. Oh, Jesus, I'm so glad that you have redeemed me from that and have still put a joy in my heart for the church and that you are building your kingdom and the gates of hell shall not prevail <laughs> because your Holiness is contagious. The gates of hell are stormed by the goodness of your people. Oh God, I pray that in this house that we would learn as we look at the new reformation, what does the church need in North America in this season? That we repent of our foolish ways that are not rooted in you. And God, for the person this morning that you are touching by the Holy Spirit, and they know it because they're feeling maybe anger or frustration about this message. Help them to hear that this is you putting your finger on something in their heart that needs repentance and change. And it may be a deep, deep-rooted root, but that root needs to be pulled up and it's not going to come up easily. It's going to require the strength of the Spirit of God and cooperation of the individual. But Lord, if that's someone in this house this morning, I don't know what it is, but if it is, Lord, I pray that they hear that that's the Holy Spirit. That's your spirit saying, I'm trying to give you life. I'm trying to show you the way out. I'm trying to show you how to, to not continue in that pharisaical, uh, there were good Pharisees, good parts of Pharisees. I'm, I'm overstating the Pharisees, but that religiosity, God, just like you did with me in my life. And so that will not get you where you think it will get you. In fact, it will be woe unto you, Shell. You high heap on commands on people that they cannot fulfill, neither can you. And you slam the gates of the kingdom in their faces. I Lord, if that person today is feeling the conviction of your Holy Spirit, I pray that they, they would grab onto that today, that they would say, yes, I repent. And oh Lord, help me to pull out that root. It may be very deep. It may be rooted in all kinds of things, misinterpretation of scripture, misuse of the law, culture, family, whatever, God, church. Pull out that root. Pull it out in Jesus' name and replace it with a heart of love. Take out that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. God, I just declare prophetically that for healing for someone in this house, that you would do that work. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Do it in all of us if we need it, Lord. And if you're willing to, say amen.